You can bring someone in from Ghana into your classroom today. That's today's guest, Dr. Lee Nelson, reminding us that bringing cool resources to our students is easier than we think. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Dr. Lee Nelson is Director of Choral Activities at Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa. Under his direction, the Wartburg Choir has performed at multiple ACDA conventions, the White House, and the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. A highly sought-after conductor, clinician, and adjudicator, Nelson has directed all state and honor choirs throughout the United States and internationally. Find Lee's full bio, our show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was a high point for you in this interview? Oh, it was such a relatable journey for me as he talked about his missteps when it came to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think it's good to learn from the mistakes of others before you make them yourself. How about you, Steve? What did you dig? I was struck by a very consistent theme throughout. Listen. Lee is always seeking out input from colleagues and students, including those students at Wartburg who aren't singing in his choirs. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a lot of humility. It's cool. I also love his taste in in music and his repertoire. I added all his recommended composers to my playlist. It's good stuff. Let's get to this conversation. Lee Nelson, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Let's dive right into a subject on the minds of many music educators, diversity, equity, and inclusion. These topics have become especially important as we consider our repertoire and programming. And I'm curious, how have your thoughts or approaches on such matters evolved over the years? I've always prided myself in programming and programming from all different styles and places around the world. But I think as all educators have experienced in the last, I would say three, four years, but obviously in the last 12 months, the world has foundationally changed. And everything in which we have thought was the way you do things has been upended. I've spent the last 12 months, eight months listening. And I want to say at the get-go, I am by no means an expert in this <laughs> at all. In fact, I typically sort of stay away from this topic because, frankly, I want to listen. I want, I want to hear what people are saying. And so I've done that. There's never been a time in which there has been more information out there than there is right now about diversity, equity, inclusion. And what I've found in my, in my time is that the things that, in which I thought I was doing right and had all of the best intentions perhaps was not getting the results I wanted and actually was perhaps marginalizing people in ways in which I just didn't realize. And I think that has been the major shift that we've all seen. And there's no excuse now about not having enough information. Every conference that you go to has lectures about this or people talking about this, journal articles, podcasts, they're all around. So yeah, it's changed a lot for me. So you you said that there were things that were very well-intentioned, like you really thought, hey, I need to do this to be more inclusive. Can you provide a couple of concrete examples? Because you are probably not the only educator who's had good intentions and then later on found out, ooh, that actually marginalizes rather than acknowledges. Sure. The one that's probably the most common is the spiritual. That is one in which people put in there and, oh, we're going to, it's Black History Month. So we're going to sing this song for Black History Month and, and away you go. Intent is good. 
However, what is the context in which you're doing it? Are you doing it simply as, oh, it's the fun piece that's going to end the concert, which I will openly own that I have done that because they are fun and audiences love them. But in context, is it always taking the message that is inherent to that piece? And is it, are we lifting it up in the right way? And then it's not only intention versus context, it's also then impact intention versus impact. Was it a positive impact? And for a lot of people, perhaps yes. However, there was probably students in which it was a negative impact to them saying, you know what, you just took this piece and you added some movement to it, or you did this to this piece, which you really don't understand. That piece was never intended to be a dance party. That piece is actually a piece that's meant for a uh, religious service. And my and my family from Ghana understands where this comes in context to it. So for me, I think many of us have been guilty of doing things like that. And I have really stepped back and looked at every piece that I'm doing now and finding ways in which I can lift up those pieces in the most respectful light, the most artistic light, and performed with the highest amount of research and understanding and education. Obviously, everyone does that. No one's intent. I've not met anyone yet who said, ooh, I really want to do this piece because I'm going to heckle this culture. No one has that. A podcast I listened to about a month ago, someone said, is your music empowering the singers, the students? Or is the music marginalizing the singers, the students, the audience, and looking in ways in which you might be marginalizing and letting that dictate how and what you do? So after you have made the decision to program a certain piece of music and you've thought about the intent, uh, what goes into working with the students? For me, many years a jazz instructor and programming primarily black music because it's been a black art form, but really I, I hate to admit it, it's been until this last year where I really decided I need to start talking a lot more about the experience of these musicians that created this music that we are working on. So I'm curious if for you, there has been a shift not only in how you have programmed, but also in how you present this to the students, the background you might give with a spiritual or behind spirituals in general as a genre. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'll say that I've always felt that I have given every piece due diligence and then I've researched it and then I've introduced it in an appropriate manner. And I haven't. If I go back and look at it, yeah, there are some pieces in which it's just, isn't this fun? Isn't this just a great bop to go along with here? And not getting deeper into it. When it all comes down to it, I think every podcast I've ever listened to, any article says there's two main things. Number one, that you give it the utmost respect. Number two, that you give it due diligence, that you do your homework. For real, do your homework. So if you're going to do the Bach B minor mass, you're going to spend some time learning performance practice and style and, and all of those things. Are you doing that with the piece from South America? Are you doing that with the piece from, from Ghana? So first things that I'm doing now is taking out a map is simply going, so where does this come from? Oh, that's where Ghana is. I did not know where that's at. And then letting students know, here's where that's at. Pointing out, here's where in the world this music might come from. Listening to recordings that are not uh, necessarily by our standards, by perhaps North American standards, what we all oh, listen to this band play this piece perfectly. What if you go to a place in which it's indigenous to that, that the indigenous culture is performing it for you? So you get to hear the timbres. Now we get into a whole rabbit hole of authenticity. 
That's a great point. And certainly in the instrumental world, there is a discussion right now, as you, you, you refer to it as sort of the North American aesthetic. For instrumental side, it's a very specific concept of what we are taught quote unquote, good tone sounds like. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the things that I notice when I have true practitioners of jazz music who came up through that aural tradition is they are way less worried about the intonation and the tone, and they're way more into the underlying feeling that's generating it. Can you talk about your experiences? You've listened to some of these recordings. Absolutely. Someone was talking about a Finnish piece that they were doing, and they had a culture bearer, which I love that term, and to bring them into your ensemble rehearsals, someone from the culture to talk about the, not necessarily the music, but just about the culture, speak the language for them, talk about what it's like to be brought up in a house from this part of the world. Someone had a culture bearer, and they played two recordings of this Finnish piece. One was of a very well-known choir singing perfectly uh, on this piece. And I mean, what we, what I would say, whoa, amazing. And then played a recording of a Finnish uh, children's choir with lots of what we would refer to as blemishes. Intonation might be wonky or the cutoffs weren't together. And she said, so which one would you say is the Finnish choir? Oh, no doubt. This one, absolutely. This one over here, prefer that every single time. Why? Oh, because the sound, because of the, the spirit of the piece because I mean this piece is about and then went into what the song is all about where the other piece was perfectly performed by our standards and this other piece actually represented the culture in a much more accurate way so seeking out those people uh, someone else referred to it as finding an informant having an informant from every one of those cultures same idea as culture bear someone to be an expert that's a slippery slope because I've got one of my dearest composer friends is one of the world's best known spiritual writers right now, sort of the heir apparent to what Moses Hogan left. And he has some very different thoughts on who should sing and what's okay versus other people. So I'll get in one response from him saying, you should do this. And I'll talk to another dear friend who says, oh, absolutely. You can't do that. Like That's not the way to go about it. This is where people get scared to program it. So now I'm just going to walk away from it. And now I'm just going to program a German Lutheran chorale song. And that's where I think the world is right now. No one wants to do it wrong. No one wants to insult. Everyone's a little bit scared of moving forward. And I think that's just part of the pendulum swing that's going to come back more towards center here soon. I've had students of mine recently ask, I'm a a white person, and if I end up teaching in Iowa, I'm likely to have a white choir. Am I allowed to program a spiritual? How would you answer that kind of question? The answer that I would give is yes. I would also say then everything that we just talked about, make sure that that is approached in this manner, in this manner. Take a look at the piece. Who arranged it? Who wrote the piece? How close to the original is the piece. And there's lots of issues with that as well. But uh, getting to sort of the heart of what it's about, Janet Galvan, who who was the director of choral activities at Ithaca College, said something that just struck me so deeply. She said, and I'm paraphrasing here, when we sing the music from another culture, we are holding in our hands the hopes, the dreams, the past, the future, the sorrows, the pain, the joy, the celebration, the dreams of a people. And we must hold that as we would hold our own child. 
And that's what I would tell students that if it's the fun song at the end, that's going to make people stand up and cheer, then perhaps you're not finding the right place there. Make sure that you are talking to people, talking to experts. It's a gospel piece. Guess what in Iowa? Guess what? In Waterloo, Iowa, there are a whole bunch of gospel choirs. Uh, there are a whole bunch of experts who could come in and talk to your all-white choir and say, here are some things that you could think about as you're doing it. Will we ever sound like perhaps an all-black gospel choir? No. And, and is that the end goal? Uh, no. Uh, that authenticity, we can't we, uh, do that. However, we can respectfully approach that music so we understand that if we're snapping on a gospel piece, that's not meant to be snapped to. We clap in church. We don't snap in church. We clap in church. That's why we do that and, and talk about why. So if I'm a choir director in a very small town in rural Kansas, how do I find a culture bearer? How do I find recordings that are indigenous? How can I find that local expertise that might be closer than I think? Because I might hear you talk about this and think, well, I don't have any place I'm close to like that. You simply start typing it into the Google machine, right? Start to figure out there. We have never been more uh, adept at Zoom. You can bring someone in from Ghana into your classroom today. You could find someone over there. You can reach out to people who might be talking uh, on a podcast or a conference and say, okay, so give me some of these names. Who are these people? Look at the arranger, the composer. If you're doing a piece by uh, Keith Hampton, Keith Hampton will be more than happy to most likely to zoom into your, your classroom with you and be that culture bearer with you. One thing I like that you have been pretty consistent through this conversation, Lee, is that, of course, here in America, we need to be aware of the traditional American black music, spirituals. But you are also, when you think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you are thinking worldwide. You're thinking Finnish music as well. You're thinking music from Ghana. Could you talk just a little bit more about that? Because I think that's something that, especially over the last year, we have have begun to associate diversity, equity, inclusion with we need to play American black music or program American black music. And it's really so much bigger than that. And I can hear that as you've been talking. Could you speak just a little more to that? Sure. That's a trap that so many people fall into. Every culture has an art form <laughs> with that. Uh, I come from a Norwegian background, and there is an entire culture, obviously, but an entire musical background that goes with that and it, how it's evolved into today's time. Composers that happen to be women, as opposed to women composers. You hear the difference, right? Um, realizing that there are composers who happen to be women who write in this style. And all of a sudden, the students can see themselves in the music. I took a sort of a stock of what my program, not my, our, our program here at Warburg looks like. How many students of color are in the music program versus the entire college? And saw a pretty huge uh, disparity between those two numbers, which was shocking to me. I uh, talked with the leader of the Black Student Union here, uh, uh, Crystal Matlock, about that. And she said, well, why don't we get together a group of alums that are BIPOC uh, alums who you can just have an open and honest conversation about. And what did it feel like to be in your ensemble? Inclusivity is, do you feel like you have a home when you get there? And I'm sort of veering off of your main question, Steve, I apologize. But I think it's important to say that a student has to be able to see themselves 
in your program, whether it be through the music that you're singing, whether it be the gender in which you associate yourself with, whether it be the composers that you are talking about and showing pictures of. Um, there's a lot of people who didn't realize that Undine Smith-Moore was a black woman. They loved his spiritual settings, right? Until finally one day, yeah, you you say she's actually known as the dean of, of black music and has written a whole bunch of other things out there as well. So I don't know if I adequately answered that question, Steve. I don't think you veered off topic at all, because I think that, again, the diversity, equity, inclusion, it's not just simply programming music by black composers. There's more to it than that. And I think your suggestion, what you did with your own program with alums, that's something our high school and middle school teachers could very much do as well, reaching out to former participants in their program, asking them what their experience was like. I think that's a perfect example that this is a big issue that encompasses many, many different things. Hey, Steve, can I add two more things to that real quick that are very tangible ways in which you can change things in your program? How are you doing your audition process? If your ensemble is, is predominantly white or Caucasian or identifies that way, have you looked at your audition process? Are you requiring them to sing an art song? What about the students who don't even know what an art song is? What if you just allowed them to sing whatever song that they wanted to sing? So we're changing Warburg that paradigm of, you know what? It used to be, you have to sing this Italian aria. You come in and sing whatever that's going to showcase your voice the most. And that might be an R&B piece that will blow our minds. Second thing about inclusivity, what are you wearing at your concerts? What is the concert dress? Do people feel comfortable in the, literally in the clothes that they're wearing? And if there are people who don't, how are you addressing that moving forward? And then finally, there's three I lied, Steve, whose butts are in the seat? Sorry, that's a bit crass, but who's coming to your concerts? I've noticed that at Warburg Choir concerts. We have a lot of gray-haired, wonderful human beings who happen to all be white and love church music. Well, look at the repertoire we're singing. Well, it happens to be a lot of white music uh, or music by white people who write in a church style. Perhaps we want to sing some other music that might engage a whole new audience. Maybe we connect up with this uh, local group on campus and lift up their effort, what they're bringing out. There's ways to do that in small rural towns as well, obviously, in the larger cities. We always think, oh, I've got to be in Chicago to make that happen. No, you could probably do that in Janesville, Iowa. You could probably make that, uh, not probably, I know you can. So finding tangible ways to make people feel more welcome in the program and to build a new audience and to show a predominantly white ensemble that what it means to truly respect another culture to truly respect and lift up and to, oh, educate, right? We are educators to truly educate that. Those are great points. And actually, I think segue right into the other part of the conversation. I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes before we close here talking about competition, which is something we often associate with high school music contests and trophies, but as you well know, are, are very present in collegiate programs as well. What role does competition serve in your program at Warburg? You talked a little bit about the audition process and how you are changing the audition process so it maybe does not disproportionately favor certain groups. But uh, in general, how does competition fit into the choral music program at Warburg? Competition is similar to salt. So you need sodium to stay alive. 
if you start eating too much salt, you start to have all sorts of health issues. And all of a sudden, salt does not become healthy anymore. Same thing with competition, right? What is the balance of, we know that competition will raise the level of the student's perceived success, right? What they think that they can be successful with or their potential, their perceived potential. Competition can raise them. It can also make them feel as though they're not good enough and simply leave the art form altogether. Our job as educators, and at least at Wartburg, and I think everywhere, is to monitor that. If your program is built on competition and who's number one, who gets the biggest trophy, think about who you're marginalizing in doing that. <laughs> if our job is to educate everyone, then competition needs to be, can be part of it, but it can't be the primary motivator. I've seen too many people drop out because they just never feel good enough or they will never become that person. I've also seen competition lift up ensembles and students and educators in ways you know, that push them in a whole different way. Our job is to monitor the amount of salt that's in the diet. And let's take that a step further to your music education students, the future high school, middle school ensemble directors, music teachers. What do you tell them in terms of festivals and contests, trophies? I'm sure the salt analogy can work there too, but when it comes down to real practical things and the students say, Dr. Nelson, should I be taking my show choir to competitions with trophies? What do you tell them? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to help grow your program in ways in which you might not do otherwise. It might get certain students into the program that may have never been part of it before. If, however, the tail is wagging the dog, <laughs> you always have to take a look at where the balance is at that. And if you didn't get a superior rating and the world stops for you, then maybe things are out of balance there. Good advice. Well, Lee Nelson, thank you for joining us to share your insight on these important issues today. Let's close with some lightning round questions on a few lighter topics. Are you ready? I'm scared, but ready. Favorite restaurant in the world? That would be a, a restaurant that I can't name. I just know it's in Florence. I know it's a really small uh, shop that has an olive farm on one side and a vineyard on the other side. And it's the best olive oil and the best wine and the best homemade noodles I've ever had. Favorite book that you read to your three lovely children? Ty, the Harry Potter series with my son, not necessarily, be, well, the books are awesome, but the bonding in which we spent every single night uh, experiencing those books together was something I'll never, ever, ever forget. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia from a subject matter um, would be uh, the one that has led to the most thoughtful conversations with my kids. A piece of music or a composer that you wish more people knew about and programmed with their groups. I'll go with Adolphus Hailstork. Uh, he writes music for choir, for orchestra, and for band. He should be known as one of the great composers of the 20th and 21st century, and so few people know him. Uh, unbelievable music. Check out the other one I'd say is Levente Gingosi. That, that one's a hard one to even spell. The last name is G-Y-O-N-G-O-S-I with umlauts over the O's. Oh's. Uh, he's from Hungary. He's from Budapest, Hungary. And if you're looking for something that's not slow, beautiful chords, one after the other, and if you're looking for some counterpoint in the 21st century, check out Levantage and Josie's music. It's unbelievable. Guilty pleasure song that Dr. Lee Nelson, esteemed director of choral activities at Wartburg College, might sing in the car. 
I may or may not know all the words to, and it's not a great song, and I feel bad admitting to it, but I absolutely love Shoop by Salt and Peppa. I don't uh-huh. see any problem admitting that out loud. And not at there all. might be one more person on this uh, call who could also do that. <laughs> and finally, if you could not be a musician or a music teacher, what do you think your career would have been? It would have probably been something in business. But if I could choose something and if I could have the skill set for it, I would have been on the team that designed Perseverance that got to Mar- that is on Mars right now, something in the space field. I've always loved space and science and, and NASA was always my dream job until I realized I have to be good at math. And then that turned things around for me. Well, Lee Nelson, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. As a Wartburg grad, I'm just so proud that you continue the traditions that you do. Every ensemble you direct, every concert your groups perform is a joy. And I want to second the Jin Josie thing. Those compositions are mind-blowing. It's such an honor to, to visit with you and really appreciate your practical insights today. Uh, thanks to both of you. And thanks for this podcast. What an important podcast this is. And thanks for hitting these hard-hitting subjects. Uh, this is a scary one. DEI is a scary one. And again, I'll say I'm not an expert on this, but I appreciate offering up a few ideas on this and would be happy to be a resource to help connect to other people and, and some books to read and things like that. I've got some things in which I'd love to pass along. So just feel free to reach out to me. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.